Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, there's so much going on in the world today. Um, we've got this this coronavirus, uh, which is kind of just making us all realize uh, how absolutely interconnected um, all of us are. And in maybe in, in, in ways perhaps that we, we, we never even imagined. And that's actually um, a segue. It, it's sort of like the topic of the day in some ways. But in another way, it's a, it's a segue to um, a discussion of, of the golden calf and, and what went wrong and, and what, what was being asked of us and, 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 and all the rest. So I'm going to try a different perspective on that. And this has um, larger consequences just of how we, uh, how we just kind of conduct our lives um, because it, it really has to do with how do, we, how do we think of ourselves? Um, are we individuals? Are we members of a community? Are we both? How do we balance that, that type of expanded consciousness that we are in fact both? And, and how does all this connect to us being really right on the precipice of the great redemption when we got the, the first tablets at Mount Sinai and then somehow all that going south very quickly, just going completely awry? So... These are some of the, the themes that we're going to discuss. And then, um, and I, I also want to tell you just an awesome story that I heard from Reb Shlomo um, about the moments after the Six-Day War, about how he tried to bring unity uh, between um, the Jews and, and, and the Arab lands, and, and he wasn't, he didn't get the support that he needed to do that. So so if if I don't get to that story, please remind me. We're going we're gonna to start our journey here with... Um, with what went wrong at Mount Sinai. So everything was going right. As everybody knows, um, we, d- we did this uh, amazing, amazing uh, statement, Nasevenishma, which was that, God, we, we trust you so much. Um, you know what? We don't even have to hear what, what you have to say. We, we already want to do it. If it's coming from you, we want to do it. So that was probably the, the highlight of... of of human civilization at that at that moment, um, I don't know that we've ever even topped that, but it was this this ultimate affirmation of our love and trust of God. Um, so things were going absolutely fantastically well, and now now let's let's talk about the the unwinding, the great unwinding, unfortunately, that that took place. So first, um, let me uh, kind of address a large misconception um, about about the events that happened 40 days later, which was, you know, a.k.a. the sin of the golden calf, right? Um, I think that a lot of people think that this was a, a, a sin of idol worship. The, the, the commentators explain that it, that it really wasn't. Okay, so that, that's, that's a big thought right there. Um, we were sort of looking for an intermediary to replace Moshe Rabbeinu um, because we thought Moshe was dead. Uh, and that was part of the test of the whole thing. The Gomorrah in Gomorrah Shabbos, page 88, says that the Satan um, 
showed us an image of Moshe's coffin. And that, that sort of induced panic, like widespread panic among the Jewish people. And it precipitated the, the sin of the golden calf. Okay. So, so we've covered this point in, in previous years. We're going to say new stuff now, but let me just hit this point very quickly. What did God want from us? In other words, if this was a test, if he was instructing the Sutton, who of course works for God because there's only one power in the world, if God was in, instructing the Sutton to show us this, this um, fake image of a, of a dead Moshe, um, what, was, what response was God trying to get out of us? We, we know the response that he didn't want from us, which was to make a golden calf and to, you know, sort of appoint that. Um, but, but the bigger question is, uh, what did God want from us? That, that, that's the big question here. And um, I think that the answer is, um, uh, just in my, my own opinion, the, it, I think God wanted us to say, wow, we just lost the greatest human being that ever lived, Moshe Rabbeinu. Uh, this is tragic, but we still have this direct relationship with God, and, and that hasn't ended. And and so, um, in, in a weird way, this this image of of Moshe's coffin was supposed to bring us even closer to God, because we would realize, you know, even though Moshe took us out of Egypt, and even though he was sort of on top of Mount Sinai, like he kind of like conveyed the, 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 the Torah to the Jewish people from God. Um, our relationship is directly with God. And then we would have found out that Moshe is still alive, as we, as we did anyway, by the way. And then we would have been even closer to God. Right? So, so, so do, do you see how, how that test was actually designed to get us closer to God? Okay. This point we've covered in different ways uh, in previous years, but now I want to say something new. So, so the second bit of conventional wisdom, which is incorrect, and I want to just sort of straighten it out here, is that a very tiny percentage of the people at Mount Sinai participated in the, in the worship of the golden calf. Or let's not even call it the worship of the golden calf. Let's call it the, the appointing of the golden calf as an intermediate with a long stream of hyphens in between that very long phrase, right? Um, because we, we didn't, we, you know, there, there is this line which is very confusing in the text, which is that the, you know, I guess the more fanatical, um, you know, uh, people who set up the golden calf said, this is the God who took us out of Egypt. So, so if you read that line very simply, it looks like, wow, that is outright idol worship. You know, there's no question about it. But... But that's not, as the Chachamim, as our sages explain it, that, that isn't really pshat, that isn't really what was going on. Again, they were just looking for this intermediary because people were terrified about having a direct relationship with God. And I think that people are still terrified about having a direct relationship with God. We want to say that my boss did this to me, or my wife, or my husband, or my kids, or my friends, or my community, or whatever it is, they all did this to me. Um, on a very deep level, w when we do that, there, there is, there's a part of us that's, that's hiding from a direct relationship with God. And, and again, as we just explained, God just brought this whole test, the, 
the, the illusion of the death of Moshe only to bring us closer to God directly. So, so there was a happy ending to that in, in God's plan. Um, but again, let's, let's get to the, 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 the second conventional piece of wisdom about the sin of the golden calf that, that I want to break right now. Um, maybe you already know it. And, and it really relates to what's going on in the world today with this whole coronavirus, I think. Um, and that's, that's that a tiny percentage, a tiny percentage. It says that the tribe of the Levium killed, it says right in the Torah, approximately 3,000 people. So, so afterwards, so now think about it. So there were about two and a half, three million people at Mount Sinai, and it says about 3,000 people were killed. Okay, so that's, okay, it's, that's not nothing, but, you know, compared to three million people, two and a half million people, it, it's a very, very small number of people. So now, here's the question that everyone will ask after we learn that, which is that if it was only such a small number of people, why did God make such a big deal out of it? Why does God, like, talk about this, this event as though we all participated in it? Right and and um, and all the consequences that, that that came from it. Like, what was the big deal? And and here's where it starts to get um, here's where it starts to get a little bit challenging for us in terms of our daily lives today. Um, because remember that the Torah is going on every single moment, and. Um, you know, the, the opening line of this week's Parsha, it was wild. Like, um, those of you in our, who are in America right now will, will extra appreciate this. But um, the, the opening line of the Torah is, God says to Moshe, take a census. And in the United States, the government takes a census once every 10 years. Two days ago, I got my census form from the United States government. Do you, do you understand that? They could have sent that out any time during the year. And and here it is, like, exactly arriving right when it says, God says to Moshe, take a census. And then if you continue on, a few words later it says, so that the plague shouldn't strike them. Like, again, it's just wild. It's just talking about what's going on in the Parsha right now. And then... Uh, Yehuda Solomon pointed out something beautiful. The Parsha ends with Moshe Rabbeinu taking off his mask. You know, a lot of people are wearing masks today to stop themselves from the virus. And and I, I thought it was a beautiful blessing, actually, that, that Moshe is taking off his mask. In other words, a blessing that we shouldn't need these masks anymore. A blessing that the, the um, you know, all the preparations and precautions... For, of the virus spreading should end. We we shouldn't need it anymore. Okay. But let's get back to this idea of why was it such a big deal? In other words, if a small percentage of the Jewish people participated in this, why why was it such a big deal? And and let's let's drill down even deeper. Who was this small percentage of the Jewish people? That, that participated in the in the in in the whole golden calf in, incident, and and the, the the answer is, our sages say that where you see the 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 word am, 
Ayin Mem, Am, which means nation, um, like Am Yisrael, for instance, um, where you see the word Am in the Torah, it's referring to the heir of Rav. So who are the heir of Rav? So now you have to understand what, what what's so beautiful about the heir of Rav. Usually we're kind of like saying, ah, oh, the heir of Rav, you know, that was this mixed multitude of nations um, that left Egypt with us. And, and what I'm saying is beautiful about it um, is that whenever, whenever you really think about the Torah, like, and you ask yourself, well, what would, how should it have been? What, what would it have been like if it really took place? And in fact, it did take place. What do you think should have happened? Well, let's all put ourselves in the, in the shoes or the sandals, I guess, of the, of, of the Jews leaving Egypt after 10 plagues. Now, remember, Moshe says, this plague is going to come very specifically, and it comes. And then he says, and now it's going to leave. And exactly the date, exactly the time he says it's going to leave, it leaves. There's 10 of these, and they turn the greatest civilization, maybe the greatest civilization the world has ever known in some arguments, completely upside down, destroys it, devastates it. Now, imagine you're not a member of the Jewish people. And you are watching these events unfold over the period of approximately one calendar year, which was the time frame for the 10 plagues. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were like Joe Egyptian, I think that I would say, I'm going wherever they're going. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, like, like what? You know, whatever connection they have with the one who's running the entire world and can do all of this, I'm with them. And so what I'm trying to say is, is that if these events actually took place, and again, they did, then you would imagine, in fact, you would expect that there would be a lot of people who should have joined the Jewish people as they left Egypt. And in fact, that's what happened. So that's what I mean by that the whole concept of the era of Rav is a beautiful thing, because for me, it shows the truth of the Torah, or another instance of the truth of the Torah. Okay, so, so this, this mixed multitude who were, you know, not members of the Jewish people, but, but they're like brand new members of the Jewish people. And remember, we get the Torah 50 days after we leave Egypt. So these were like full-on, hardcore idol worshippers as of 50 days ago, all right? So it's, you know, this transition for them is, is kind of tough. You know, this whole concept of one God and all the rest, and we're not into idols and everything like that. And now they're, they're Jews, like, the, the, the whole conversion process happens right at Mount Sinai, so they're full-on Jews for, like, a few days now. And all of a sudden, mass panic happens. The one who took them out, the one who they were kind of pinning their hopes on, Moshe, is shown that to them to be dead. So, so their reaction is, you know, in that context, at least psychologically, socially, sociologically, to be expected. It, it's not so outrageous. It's not so outrageous. Now you can say, but wait a second, God spoke to them on Mount Sinai and they saw that there's only one God and everything like that. It's true. 
But in times of panic, people make really lousy decisions. And I got a piece of advice uh, not long ago, and I, I, I would urge you all to, to hear this well, which is don't make a big life decision unless you've had a night to sleep on it. Um, we tend to be very reactive. And it's at those moments when we're very reactive, when we often make the worst decisions of our life. And, um, and you can avoid that by like, if you're like, in one of those tight spots, where sort of like, the rug just got pulled out from under you, you say, you know something, I, I need a little time to think about it. You know, I, I hear you. Um, you know, let's, let's touch base tomorrow. Let's talk tomorrow. And, um, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll let you know what you need to know. So, so, so here's an example where that didn't happen. Uh, people said, you know, it's, uh, we're, we're, we're panicking. And, 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 and this is our go-to thing. You know, there's, there's a God for everything. That's the whole thing. That's part of the appeal, by the way, of idol worship, is that they had a God for everything. Um, and, and so, so that's, uh, that, that's psychologically very appealing. Like, you know, like if you have a specific need, well, you know, there's an app for that, right? You can go, you can go straight, you can go straight to that and, and feel as though your need is being addressed. But, but God who runs the entire world, it doesn't, isn't subdivided in that way. So, but anyway, we still haven't gotten to the point here. Um, we've got to go, we've got to go deeper. Um, by the way, can you still hear me? Can you, can you hear me? Uh, yeah. Okay, great. Um, uh, I'm getting all these texts. So I'm getting all these beeps. So I just muted that. I wanted to make sure that I wasn't being uh, muted. Um, okay. So now we're going to go deeper. So what was the problem? Why did God get upset at the entire Jewish people if it was a small number of people who participated into this? All right. So as Rib Shlomo would say, open up your hearts. It's because... It's because we didn't reach out to that part of the population that was panicking. We, we, we didn't try as a large group, as a nation. You know, there was an individual, Her, who was one of the leaders of the Jewish people. Most people don't talk about him, but he was big. He was right up there with Moshe. And he tried to stop them and they stoned him. They killed him on the spot. But, you know, there's a difference between one person trying to stop a charging mob and 100,000 or 200,000 or a million or 2 million people trying to stop a charging mob. And all of a sudden, it's like there's nowhere for the mob to go because you're so much larger than them. And there was a moment where the Jewish people were supposed to think beyond themselves as individuals And that would have stopped this. That would have calmed the entire community. So now I want to go deeper still. I want to go deeper still. So what I'm trying to say is the following. 
All of us exist on two planes, okay? One plane is, it, it's me. It's, it's me, myself, and I. It's just, you know, I'm a miniature of the world, and that's what it is, and it's me. It's me, folks. But then there's another aspect of us that's as much a part of ourselves, which is that I'm one piece of one large collective soul. That there's a larger community, and that's equally me. In other words, it's not just, there's really me, and then we've got to organize all the me's, so we're going to lump them into groups. And so we're going to put you in this group that's called the Nation of Israel, but it's really just you. But, you know, just for, you know, bookkeeping, we're going to put you under the category of Israel, and that's what it is. Okay, so that's, that's not what it is. That's not what it is. This collective soul that you're part of, that we're part of, is equally us. Um, I've had the privilege of helping to marry um, a few people, not, not so many people, but a few people during my life. And one of the things, like, I, I try to, you know, meet with the chassan and kala before, beforehand, you know, and um, one of the things that that I always try to emphasize is, I say, from now on, I is is we. From now on, I is us. Meaning that um, there has to be a, a an expanding of our sense of identity, where it's I and us share equal room, and this is big and. <clears throat> This is big. You see, an entire kihila, an entire congregation joined the Jewish people when we went out of Egypt. Here's my question. Did we ever fully think of them as us? I don't know. Did we actively welcome them? I don't know. As individuals, did we make an effort to reach out so that when they started to panic, we felt their panic? I don't know. So now I want to tell you that Reb Shlomo story that, that, that I told you. After the Six-Day War, you know, the Six-Day War, the Jewish people um, in Israel um, sort of gained a, a tremendous amount of territory. I mean, these were all part of the biblical borders of Israel. So in a way, it's sort of like you can't say we, I mean, basically all we were doing was getting back to the land that God gave us initially, okay? Um, but it was much more than we had at that time. And there were large numbers of Arab, Arab villages that had not been under Israeli governance that we're now becoming under Israeli governance. But I mean like large numbers, large numbers, like hundreds of thousands and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. So I heard Reb Shlomo say this um, with my own ears. And he said that what he wanted to do, that at that moment, so so just, just so you understand what I'm saying, just so I'm being super clear, 
I'm making a connection between the Arab Rav joining the Jewish people when we left Egypt and the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, gaining all of these territories, right? Um, after the Six-Day War, just, just so you understand the parallel. And what Reb Shlomo said that he wanted to do was, he said he wanted to take a bunch of holy hippelach, right? Like the, like the, all of his chevra, uh, and to go from village, Arab village to Arab village, giving out flowers, right? Welcoming, welcoming them and making that personal connection. Like, you know, like we're neighbors now. Like we're all together. Like this is, you know, it's not, we're not just the people in tanks. We're, we're these people who are welcoming you right now. And he didn't get the support that he needed. I, I heard him say more than once when he, when he had ideas like this, things like this, not, not this specifically, but like this. Maybe it was this specifically too. He said that there were people who laughed at him. And I remember him being upset about it till this day, you know? I mean, he... he I, I saw Reb Shlomo upset a number of times. Like anyone who thinks that he just had a blissful smile on his face 24-7, I mean, he often did, but that wasn't, he got upset about things. And, and when he had an idea that he understood was a revolutionary idea to tie the world together and that it was going to work and that it was going to make a major difference in people's lives and he didn't receive the support, he got upset. Okay, he didn't stamp his feet and make a tantrum. But you could see that it, 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 it bothered him and it still bothered him because that was an opportunity that was missed. So can you imagine, Chevra, if like all these like Moshav people like poured into these Arab villages with flowers after the Six-Day War, welcoming them? We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. But it's something to think about. So again, you know, I never want to give these talks without making them as, as practical as possible. And, and, and I am offering all these ideas only to address you and me in the here and now and, and how we're individually going through life. So let me just make it a little bit more real. Um, one of the pillars of the kind of the L.A., Chevra, the Happy Minion community, was someone, Allah Vashalom, he's, he's not with us right now. He is with us, but he's not, not in body, was uh, Yedidia Blanton, who's a, a wonderful person, wonderful teacher. And one of the things that he would um, always uh, emphasize, like especially at Rosh Hashanah time, was that he would, he would always remind us that the prayers that we're praying are in the plural. Um, if you, if you look at all the blessings that we ask for, you know, I don't know how well you know Hebrew, but they all end with nun vav, nu, 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 nu. In other words, that, that's the plural. That means we, like, and, and, and for the good, when we're blessing for, you know, when we're asking for blessings of, you know, increase, health, wealth, all those things, it's all in the plural. And when we're sort of like beating our chests and saying that, you know, we didn't rise to the occasion, God, we didn't. We, we didn't do as well as we could have done. 
all of those are in the plural also. And I'll speak for myself, but I think this probably applies to everyone, and I think this is why he said it to begin with, which is that I think most of us are going through those prayers just thinking of ourselves. Please, God, send this to me. Not that we don't want it for other people, but who are we thinking about when we're asking for this thing or when we're trying to atone for something else? And we're just, I think, for the most part, most of us are just thinking about ourselves. So what's the problem with that? So you can say, oh, it's selfish, it's selfish. But I think that's not really fair. I don't think that's really fair. I I think it's selfish if you know better and you're not doing better. Then it's selfish. But if you don't know better to begin with, I don't know if it's quite selfish yet. Because I don't know that we have, as individuals, stretched out our sense of self where I is we, where I is us, where where. I'm equally a member of this collective soul as I am me. You see, because when you have that consciousness, then if someone new walks into the room or walks into a shul or whatever it is, it's the most natural thing to say hello. Or at least to wave. Or if if you're um, very socially conscious and you're, um, I mean, to say shy, and it's just hard for you to do something like that, you can just sort of give them away from the opposite side of the room. Or you can just kind of like look at them and mentally acknowledge that the room just got larger, the community just expanded, that there's a new individual here. In other words, there, at whatever level you are in terms of your, your comfort zone, there has to be a regular acknowledgement of of the communal level of our soul on an ongoing basis. Like all these things, everything goes back to the Garden of Eden. Um, So, you know, Adam and Chava were the original soulmates. And one of the greatest things I ever heard Reb Shlomo say was he was giving, a, a couple was getting married and he was giving them a blessing. And he said, he said, it took two people to get us into this mess. Who's to say it won't take two people to get us out? And as, as long as it's going to be two people, why shouldn't it be the two of you? Right? I, I heard him give this blessing. Awesome, right? So, so with that in mind, with that in mind, the question is, where was Adam? And the, the, the rabbis talk about this. Where was Adam when the snake was talking to Chava? When the snake was sort of like trying to bring Chava down, right? So it says that Adam was off meditating. Um, okay, so... So who's to know? Who's to know? But, and I'm not saying this to judge Adam, right? What do I know? But, but I do want to talk about what can be a problem. This idea that he was off meditating. We, we have to be really careful that, um, 
our own spirituality doesn't become a more elevated form of narcissism. Where we're sort of just ego-tripping out at how great I am to be serving God. Because that's one of the that's one of the the, the Yetzaharas. That's one of the that's one of the ways the Satan, so to speak, tries to get to us, tries to turn our service into arrogance. And by arrogance, what I mean by that is that we're we forget about the rest of the world and we think it's just about us. Somehow there was some essential kind of breakdown, it seems, between Adam and Chava. On some level, it seems that way. Because how could like the snake be like basically just destroying her and he's off davening? How could it be? Some, something is off. What? I don't know. But but something was off. So I heard a definition of love from, uh, from uh, in the name of Rabbi Orlowick. And he said, you know what love is? Love is that what's important to the other person becomes important to you. And even if it's not important to you, just by virtue of the fact that it's important to the other person, that now it's important to you. I I, I think that's a really nice working definition of love. So, um, So maybe that's where we can begin. Maybe that's where we can begin. Because, um, again, let me just just uh, mention again what I, what I said at the very, very top. You know, everybody wants to know, like, what's going on on a spiritual level with um, this coronavirus, which is, you know, literally shutting down the world. Literally, literally shutting down the world. What's, what's going on with it? And I'm sure people have better explanations than I do. But let me just tell you what I think is a very simple, simple idea, but for me anyway, very resonant, which is God is showing us on a very deep level, very profound, very practical level, how interconnected the entire world is. And that not just on an idea level, on a, this business, which used to be open is shut down. This conference, which was going to take place is no longer taking place. This minion that you wanted to show up with to show up to is canceled. God is showing us in the most practical here and now way that we're one collective soul. Right? That the entire world is connected in ways that we never thought we could even imagine. And it's not just all human beings. It's everything. Because, I mean, at least as of today, they say that this virus came from a bat, B-A-T, a flying bat who lives in a cave in China. 
<laughs> I mean, that's how interconnected we are. Think about something that you want to do right now that you can't do in your community. And it's because of a bat who lives in a cave in China. That's how interconnected we are. Right? And there's also something very beautiful going on right now. Because, you know, there are people who are saying, everyone is panicking. And this whole thing is getting blown out of uh, proportion. And, you know, a lot of people are saying that. But then the answer to that is, That, well, okay, okay, okay. It's true. Maybe you're in that demo that it's not life-threatening. Could be, could be. But you might be in contact with someone who's in the demo where it is life-threatening. And so now all of a sudden we're expanding our sense of responsibility in a beautiful way. We're going, okay, okay, maybe in the end it's not going to affect me, but me is us. And so you know what? I'm going out of my way right now because me is us. Um, All right, well, that's kind of what I wanted to share. I want to just tell you a... Another kind of fun story, you know, like, well, let me just tell it. The, there, this happened to me this week, and um, just maybe we'll give you a smile. Um, the, the Rebbe of Grodzisk was the, was the biggest Rebbe in Poland, Okay. Um, this is right around the time of when the Sfas Emes became Rebbe, okay? And his his son was the uh, the Eish Kodesh, right? So really giant. They, of course, that's the, the Rebbe of the, the Warsaw Ghetto. Um, so they're looking to republish the, the Rebbe of Grodzisk's Sefer, his, his, his book of Torah commentary. Um... And uh, just thank God I was fortunate enough to get a call. Would you like to make a donation um, for the republishing of this book? So, so I said yes. And, and actually me and, and my two sons were chipped in. And, and I think that, that put the whatever they were trying to raise over the top. So now it's like, okay, we're raising it. So that was about, um, we're going to publish the book. That was about... Uh, about a month ago, say, okay? So anyway, um, this past Thursday night, I'm sitting with my wife and my daughter, and we're having dinner. And, and I asked them, I said, you know, just making conversation, I said, what is your earliest memory? What's the earliest memory you have? And my daughter says, sitting on grandpa, that was my father, sitting on grandpa's lap. And... I thought, oh, okay. So we're trying to figure out what year that is. Now, for whatever reason, I can never, I I don't know what year my father left this world. I I just, I never remember. And people will ask me in shul when I say Kaddish for him, like, how many years has it been? I I have no idea 
I just zero. Okay. But but now we had something very practical, which is that we had to figure out how old was my daughter when she sat on my grandpa's lap, and there was no way to figure that out unless we knew what year he left this world. So I was like, well, I don't even know how I would find out. And then I thought, okay, I'll Google it. So I start Google, Googling around, and I find this condolence page that was established online after my father was nifter. And um, and there it had the date, 2006. Okay, so 14 years ago. So I finally have it in my head. My father left this world in the year 2006. Okay. So now hold that thought. One hour later, I get a call from, from the rabbi that I learned with in the mornings. And we've been learning together more or less every day not Shabbos or Sunday, but more or less every day for the past 27 years. Um, and we we never, we only speak at the scheduled time. There have been a few rare examples when, when we spoke at other times, but it's just in the morning, 27 years. So an hour after I find out it's the year 2006, I get a call from him from Israel. It's about 9.30 p.m. my time, which is extremely unusual. He says, okay, we're finishing up the dedication page for the new book of the Rebbe that's being republished. Um, I have all the information from something else of when your mother left the world and when your, your father-in-law left the world, but what year did your father leave the world? This is an hour later. I said, 2006. (laughs) Like, you know, of course I know the answer to that question that I haven't known the answer for for the last 14 years. So, so, like I tell you all the time, when these things happen to you, you have to pray. It means the gates are open. You got to pray. Um... I'll share with you what I think this means. I don't know. You can take it or leave it. But it's just my kind of how it hit me. You know, different Rebbe's, including the Eish Kodesh, by the way, made promises to their Hasidim that if you get my books published, that I will pray for you in the next world and things like that. The Rebbe of Grodzisk was, was really one of, one of the biggest Rebbe's in, in the entire world, you know? I feel like he was saying, okay, we're in a relationship. Just want you to know, just letting you know, we're in a relationship. Um, so, uh, who knows? All right. Uh, I'll give you guys an advertisement. Um, Rabbi Freeman, uh, Rabbi Tzvi Freeman, uh, and I are going to be doing, um, I guess, another talk online at 2 p.m., I think that's LA time, 2 p.m. So any of you who want to join that would be great. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm just uh, just so happy that this took place. And I guess we could do questions. I guess I could unmute this in case anyone has any questions. So um, let, me, let me try to do that. Let's see if I can figure out how to do that. Uh, 
Let's see. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.